Hello, everyone, and I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. This is the Patrick Henry Podcast, where we stick it to the elite of the world and hold them to account as they have not been held to account in a Jeffersonian matter, uh, certainly since I've left Washington 20 years ago. And today we start with a thesis. I, I, I populism is winning. In just the past week, Argentina have voted for a libertarian. Uh, to be president of their country, which is almost unheard of. A libertarian hasn't been president of a large country, certainly in memory, Javier Malay. And we had a shock result also in Holland, although there are 16 parties, a very fragmented outcome as a result, with proportional representation of the country I know very well. And the far-right populist Gert Wilders has come in from the cold, uh, shockingly winning 37 seats, easily the most. The establishment left-wing uh, coalition led by EU poster boy, the vice president, and the man in charge of their green policy, Franz Timmermans, came a poor second, um, about 25, 25 seats to uh, Wilders's 37 seats. So what in the world is going on? We're going to ask the question that matters in political risk analysis, why? Why is populism winning? And really, the subtitle gives it away for this podcast. The insurgents differ on much, but agree on one big thing. Our oblivious elite have run the world into a ditch. They're winning because much as they differ on what to do or don't know what to do or have problems governing, all of which I think you could lay at the door of insurgents from Javier Bolsonaro, who was the former president of Brazil, to the staffing troubles Donald Trump had in his first go at the White House. Uh, I think, and, and all you that you can say these people are different. I mean, it's incredibly lazy what's going on. Everyone is a far-right populist. And what that means in FT speak, the Financial Times perpetually wrong about everything speak, is we don't like this person. They aren't one of us. They aren't part of the establishment. So they're a far-right member of the elite. But to lump together Geert Wilders, who made a career since he's founded his party, the PVV, in 2004, really in an anti-Muslim notion. I mean, at the time, he was against mosques being in Holland, against the printing and reading of the Koran, all of which violates the Dutch constitution, as he now admits and is downplaying. That's his background. On the other hand, we have in Javier Malay, an economist who names his clone dogs after various free market economists, such as von Hayek um, and Milton Friedman. So these aren't the same guys, uh, and they differ very, very much on what to do, and they have different interests. Malay is, is focused, above all else, on the catastrophe that is the Argentinian economy. Uh, for Wilders, it's still about migration. It, it's, it, they called him the Dutch, the Dutch press rather cleverly. I know them and rather like them. They called him Milders in the campaign because in a mild way, he toned down some of this anti-Islamic rhetoric while, staying, while saying migration continues to be a huge problem in Holland and the Netherlands and that nobody is assimilating. But he changed his focus while really focusing primarily on migration, whereas for Malay, it's the economy, the economy, economy. So their focuses are different. Their political orientations are different, but they are both populists meaning they both agree on one big thing, as does Javier Bolsonaro, as does Donald Trump, as does Prime Minister Maloney um, here in Italy, which is that the oblivious elite have led the world into a ditch. And uh, I'll just tell you two stories here <clears throat> that kind of backs us up. First of all, again, you can learn a lot from people who are wrong all the time. So we pivot inevitably 
back to the Financial Times, that bastion of the establishment who can't figure out why anybody would vote for Malay. They ran a great op-ed late in the week where they said, you know, we're going to be keeping our eye on Malay and we're not sure he's fit to govern. And I got very populistic as a good Jeffersonian and wanted to say, who the hell are you? Don't you understand why it isn't rash of those little Argentinians? This was almost the patronizing language used by the FT um, to deal with Malay. You know, these people have made, these dumb people have made a mistake and now we're going to keep an eye on them. I would turn it around and say, I can't imagine why anybody would have voted for Sergio Massa, the Peronist candidate, the leftist establishment candidate. Massa was finance minister currently under the failed regime of Alberto Fernandez, really the regime of Christina Kirchner or Fernandez Kirchner, the former president mired in statism, mired in economic illiteracy, mired in corruption, and she's the power behind the throne. And what's happened is that Massa, as finance minister, has led Argentina to have 140% um, inflation. You heard me correctly. The rate of inflation in Argentina is 140%. Frankly, I think that most people would be insane not to vote for the outside candidate, but to vote for an establishment that allows for 140% inflation. Again, the FT, predictably, has everything back to front. I can't imagine why anybody would vote for a candidate who has so abjectly failed at his job. If any finance minister, whoever you are and whatever your politics, and you, and during your tenure, inflation hits 140%, I would say that you're part of the problem and not part of the solution. I can't imagine why anybody would vote for somebody who failed that abjectly. Of course, the FT misses all this because they think it is self-evident that the establishment should always win as they are innately good despite their record. And this is the key meritocratic point the populists are making. They disagree on a lot, but they agree on the narrative that our oblivious elite have run the world into a ditch. And I don't think there's any doubt about that. I don't think there's any doubt at all that the world has been run into a ditch. Now, why do I say that? Well, let's take the specific examples and then again, go more generally uh, to look at this. But specifically, I mean, it's clear. Argentina has a rate of 40% poverty. 50% of people are on benefits of some kind or another. Um, this is not a society doing particularly well. And as a result, unsurprisingly, they print money and borrow money like drunken sailors because the system doesn't work. If most of your workers are or public sector workers, they're not adding value to the economy. They're not creating jobs. The private sector creates jobs. And the establishment tends toward the center left. Um, and we see this, again, they don't understand that the motive force of most things is job creation, which is private sector. Not understanding that basic point leads to an awful lot of other mistakes that come along as well. And that's what we've seen happen very clearly here. So it's safe to say that after 80 years of Peronism, the populist leftist establishment, corrupt, economically illiterate, uh, who default on their on their debts rather frequently, uh, who print money and then surprise, surprise, you get inflation off the chart. It's not surprising this fails. And so people are desperate, desperate and, and any sort of alternative. It isn't that everyone in Argentina has suddenly become a populist and wants to give money to the Cato Institute. 
in the United States, which is sort of the bastion of populism to keep the rest of us honest. Um, I, I don't think that that's what's going on here. No, what's going on is that people have had it with an establishment that has abjectly failed. I think you can make the same argument with Wilders. He toned things down and became Wilders precisely so that people stopped talking about him and started talking about what they ought to be talking about was the failure of the establishment. And what they were talking about in this campaign was migration, the government of the establishment center-right, um, the VVD, Mark Rutte, who's been in power for 13 years, four separate governments, 13 years, the great survivor, uh, fell over migration issues. Uh, the fact that people aren't assimilating in Europe, that this has been forgotten, that it's multiculturalism, that people come to Europe and then don't I'm gonna, I'm gonna become part of your society, but they keep their own society, thank you, which they think is better than yours, and at the same time, they take your benefits. And this hasn't worked very well, to put it mildly. And so this was a major issue. Also, cost of living, huge problem in Europe. Again, a Europe not growing at all. And here you can make the broader argument. According to the IMF, the Eurozone economy has increased by a puny, pathetic 6% in the last 15 years. And to give you some context, while the Eurozone has grown by 6% in 15 years, meaning not at all, the United States has grown by 82% over the same time, almost doubling its economy in size in 15 years, while Europe has flatlined. And anybody who lives there, and I've lived here for the last 15 years, can tell you there is not a shred of entrepreneurship left in Europe that you see all the time. Work shyness, people trying to game out the system, but nobody being aspirational trying to grow the system. It is a swamp of center-left regulation. And Wilders made the most of this. He said, not only is the Dutch economy, the Dutch are famed, rightly so, traders being enmeshed in this moribund system, but regulation is killing the country. The Timmermans, when he was establishing the Green New Deal and as the establishment worship at the Green New Deal, um, they had new rules that the EU had pushed on them. Timmermans had pushed on the Dutch government saying there should be caps on nitrogen, which will stop farming. Uh, mainly this comes from fertilizers and cow excrement. And so this is aimed directly at farmers and not everybody in Dutch farming is agribusiness, although the Dutch farmer yield per hectare is among the best in the world. Dutch farmers are among the most efficient farmers in the world. But this was an aim directly at them. And basically what the elite in the EU said is, we don't care. None of us are farmers. We don't know anything about a family farm or four generations of land and producing something. That doesn't matter to us when we can, we can virtue signal at the gods of greendom in, in return, and even the government said, in their own estimate, which is bound to be low, they said 3,000 Dutch farms will go out of business because of these new regulations. And sure enough, a number of Dutch farmers under this immense financial pressure and this new regulatory pressure committed suicide. And this led to the founding of the new Farmers Alliance movement, which won seven seats, by the way, Farmer populists, going back to the populists in America who were farmers, think William Jennings Bryan in the 1880s, 1890s, and 1900s, that this Farmers Alliance, I think it's the BBB party in Holland, managed to get seven seats in the lower house and in the upper house already won more seats than that. And this was stirred directly by the EU not caring about what's going on. And there's, there's a great line about this that came out from the Gilets Jaunes populist movement, the Yellow Vest populist movement. When somebody said to the elite members, you know, why are you protesting? And they said to, to French journalists, look, 
The elite of our country care about the end of the world. We care about the end of the month. And I think this is a wonderful quote. The elite care about the end of the world through the green things they worry inordinately about if islands in Micronesia sink, but they don't worry about people struggling in their own country to make it to the end of the month. And as a result, 3,000 Dutch farmers were going to lose their job. It is unsurprising that in a Jeffersonian way, the farmers have struck back and are now willing to do a deal with builders to go into coalition with him. They have only seven seats, but seven and 35 is 42. They need 75 to a majority, but they're on their way to seeing if they can get that. And this is a direct and predictable and Jeffersonian populist reaction to an elite that has run the world into a ditch that simply doesn't care about economics, which is what most people care about getting through to the end of the month. As I, as, I, as I said in our Wilders podcast, the other great soundbite to think about this is Franz Timmermans is the son of diplomats. I've met this. I know Timmermans, uh, in, incidentally. I mean, we're not buddies, and I don't know if he could pick me out of a lineup, but we've been introduced now about three times. I've heard him speak three times. And Timmermans is a typical uh, European bureaucrat. He's well-educated, he's arrogant, and he knows absolutely nothing about the real world. He's probably never hammered a nail in his life. And as a result, he puts these ridiculous rules, virtue signaling green rules into effect, not understanding practically what that's going to do to his own people. And Wilders had the line of the debate of, of, of the, the final Dutch debate of the leaders of the parties when he said about Timmermans, you know, you may speak, Mr. Timmermans, you may speak seven languages, but you don't speak the language of the people. And this is exactly what's happening. And this goes back to everything we've said. From an out-of-touch Peronist party who assumed winning was their birthright to an FT who we're going to keep an eye on you, not understanding why people loathe the establishment so much, even after failure in Iraq, no weapons of mass destruction, elites wrong about that, failure in Afghanistan, we can't make Afghanis care much about women's rights when they care about a tribal structure far more. About the collapse of the world economy, while we're worrying about all this green nonsense, we're not worrying about, you know, capitalism surviving, which is the unit that keeps the world going and gives people freedom. Economic freedom leads to freedom to make choices for individuals. And this is entirely forgotten that during COVID, the reaction was more regulation, more clampdown, more centralization, even though, as Dr. Fauci put it, I am the science, meaning shut up, don't question everything, even though we know the masks were now performance art for grandma and the vaccines didn't work at all. But we rebased our society around that. And again, economics is the, is the ugly stepdaughter losing out, Cinderella, at the, not going to the ball. And so we shut down the world economy for two years and act like that's not going to affect working people everywhere. So despite a record of Afghanistan and Iraq and the, the collapse of the banking system and the world economy in 2008, 2009, uh, the disasters over COVID, missing the rise of China, missing the potency of populism, the FT arrogantly says, we're going to keep an eye on Malay. I think it's time that Malay keeps an eye on you. I think it's time we turn this around. The insurgents differ on much. Malay is a libertarian. Wilders is an old right-wing populist in the European tradition, like someone like Marine Le Pen or Viktor Orban of Hungary a little different than, than, than Prime Minister Maloney here in Italy. So there are differences within the right-wing movement. It's lazy to say they're all the same, which really means that FT speak, we don't like you. But the more important issue is they agree on one big thing. Our obsolete have run the world into a ditch. And worse, they, they claim no responsibility. I go to meetings all the time with these people. 
people who talk to government officials, EU officials, for my sins. For the last 20 years, I've been going to meetings with these folks, and trust me, they have no ownership in anything they've done. One time, and I'll, I'll say this to protect the guilty, at one meeting of an Italian think tank that I'm close to and like the people, I was told, John, can you not mention Libya because uh, the Italians were involved in the debacle with Barack Obama, the Senate Obama, and Secretary of State Clinton, and David Cameron in overthrowing a bad man, uh, Colonel Muammar Gaddafi, and leaving chaos predictably in his wake. So we now have al-Qaeda and ISIS on the border and a failed state in Libya, far worse than what we had under Gaddafi. And she asked me, could you not bring this up because socially you're going to embarrass the very Italian diplomats in the room who, you know, spearheaded this disaster. I got very angry and I think we need, we need an awful lot more humiliation. I think we've been way too nice at cocktail parties to these people. And as a result, they believe they haven't done anything wrong. That is their inherent right to run things. And that's why populism is winning, because it is holding them, as the Patrick Henry podcast does, to account. And that's everything. That's everything. Look, to end, every society that ever existed had an elite. There's nothing wrong with that. And elites are arrogant, all of them. They believe they have a God-given right to be there. They're jealous of their prerogatives. They don't let other people in. Uh, they believe that they're God-ordained to run everything. This is true from ancient Greece on up. And there's no doubt that our elite feel the same. The difference is that in the past, elites also had a sense of noblesse oblige, that you owe society something, that as you have the great good fortune to be in this elite, you owe something back to society. A great example of this is Franklin Roosevelt, who could have lived all his life out as an invalid at Hyde Park, his, his mother's beautiful estate in the Hudson River Valley, and just been there and done nothing and had a very nice life and not gotten involved. But he felt as his... Um, relative Theodore Roosevelt felt that, you know, his distant cousin, that you have to be, as Teddy put it, in the arena, that if you're rich and if you're part of an elite, you owe something back to society. So the generation of Roosevelt could say, yes, we're self-regarding and rich and think we should run everything, but, you know, we also got us through the Depression and won World War II. And most people would say, yeah, fair enough. The next generation, Eisenhower, uh, Truman, Kennedy, um, in the Nixon, can say, you know, we, we've done a lot wrong, but if you look at things overall, we're going to win the Cold War. And we also fought as young men in World War II. So again, and in Eisenhower's case, is the hero of Normandy. Hard to argue with that. And so you'd say, well, yeah, there's an elite, but they've done something, earned earn meritocratically the respect of the rest of us to run the world. The problem with this elite, the Hillary Clintons of the world, who, again, when I press people, what historically has she done? First woman to do it now. I don't, that doesn't matter to me. What has she historically done? Name me something she's objectively succeeded at. Silence. Because they haven't. What this group has done is Iraq, Afghanistan, the global financial crisis, botched COVID, botched the rise of China, botched the rise of populism. And they still think, as all elites do, self-evidently, they should run things. And this is just insane, drives everyone crazy. At these events, it drives me crazy. There's not a shred of self-reflection, not a shred of maybe we did something wrong, not a shred of these people are pushing back populists at our mistakes. The more the populists talk about the failures of the elite, the better they do. Because until the elite accepts that they have abjectly failed over the last generation and simply have to do better if they want to maintain membership in elite that runs things, 
populism, rightly, will continue winning. Thanks. Really happy to do this ahead of leaving for New York. I'll catch up with our community next week. I'll be in New York to see our friends Credit Agricole and play a war game for cash if my good friend, uh, which I'm really looking forward to. Christmas, uh, pre-Christmas in New York is, is a tradition now I've done for Credit Agricole for the last couple of years. And I love working, partnering with them through our uh, podcasts where we do a Zoom call and discuss things with New York bankers and at the same hedge funds. And at the same time, I work with Credit Agricole on a war game where we really dig down on Ukraine and Taiwan in this case. So I'm really looking forward to my week in New York. I will certainly catch up with everybody, maybe talk about what I see in America on our last big trip of the year before I head for home and a welcome Christmas break. And on that note, everyone, have a wonderful holiday season. Hope your Thanksgiving was good, and we will keep them coming even as we travel one last time. For those of you who haven't subscribed, please do so. It's very, very important. And for those of you who have, we're only asking $70 a year. Please do give so that next year we can devote ourselves even more to doing more podcasts as the result has been overwhelming. And I'm delighted and want to do this more and more and more. So please do give. And everybody remember one last thing. January 10th is D-Day. I need you to go on Amazon, the American Amazon. Give us the five stars and say, I can't wait to get my, my copy of The Last Best Hope. And that is really, really exciting. It's almost book time, and I will be bombarding you predictably in December with this. But until then, January 10th is D-Day. Please, everyone, five stars so that we can own the Amazon algorithm and get Jeff Bezos to be working for us. Take care and see you in New York.